welcome to our 40th Rising Tide Ocean podcast, marking the end of our first season. This is David Helvard and my co-host for this and the next season, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello, everyone. Today, we're talking with my friend Cynthia Barnett, an award-winning Florida-based journalist and author. She's written several books, including Mirage, Blue Revolution, Rain, and her latest, The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. Cynthia is also an environmental journalist in residence at the University of Florida's Journalism School. So, Cynthia, early in the sound of the sea, your then four-year-old daughter is collecting seashells by the seashore, and you link her to the Neanderthals. How's that? <laughs> First of all, thank you so much, David. It's so nice to see you. We haven't seen each other in person in a couple of years, and I'm delighted to be talking. And Vicki, too, thank you both for having me on, and thank you for everything you do on behalf of the oceans. So I guess I think I'll start with the Neanderthal since, uh, since she came much earlier than my daughter and say, um, as I set out to write about seashells, I was trying to think about, you know, this indelible human connection we have with shells and where that starts. And I was going back into a lot of the um, archaeology and, you know, learned about this fascinating study that uh, archaeologists know that Neanderthals collected seashells for something beyond food. So they, they collected uh, shells that were already empty on the shore. And they've been found in these, you know, fascinating stashes and uh, in sea caves and, and in different parts of the world. So I started with the Neanderthals to sort of, you know, set the stage um, about this relationship that we've always had with seashells and how far back it goes, how it really goes back to pre-humans. And I wrote about my daughter, Ilana, in that context. I was sort of imagining, when I imagined a Neanderthal walking a beach, I thought of my own daughter collecting seashells because I think our memory of seashells, you know, goes back to that pre-human memory and it also goes back to our childhood memory or our memory as parents of, you know, walking the beach with a child collecting shells. So it was my way of trying to immediately connect science to the reader and to the reader's family and to the reader's own feelings about seashells. And so many of us as children collect shells and, and we have our own personal stories. Um, and you have your story with your daughter, but Take us just for a moment, we're going to jump ahead for a second. Yeah. You were looking at how seashells and the soft animals that live within the shells are telling a story about global warming and acidifying seas. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, that is, that is where the book ends up. Um, the book is broader than, than climate change. I sort of saw seashells as a nice way of, of drawing a broader audience into what's, what's happening to the ocean. So there's a lot of, a lot of cultural history, um, a, a lot of really fun history and a lot of scientific wonder. But um, yes, absolutely, Vicki, it, it gets to this issue of, um, first of all, as you both know, the tiniest shells are beginning to dissolve in the acidifying sea the uh, small sea butterflies or pteropods 
this is something that scientists have known for a long time. And, you know, every, almost every month, there's new science about um, increasing impacts of climate change on mollusks. So, so essentially, you know, the oceans have absorbed vast amounts of the heat amassed from our greenhouse gases. And also, um, you know, so much of the, so much of the carbon has been, um, has been sent to the oceans and this has resulted in acidification and mollusks, marine mollusks are, are animals that use minerals in the surrounding environment to build their shells. And that additional carbon dioxide in the ocean is uh, limiting, limiting the carbonate that marine mollusks use to build their shells. And so it's making it harder for them to build shells um, in some cases, not in all cases. So some, some animal sh shells are becoming thinner. And um, on the other side of the climate equation, of course, uh, the oceans are becoming, uh, parts of the oceans are becoming too warm for some marine mollusks. So that, that all becomes part of the story by the end of the Sound of the Sea. And it's very much, very much blended with the story of, you know, humanity and, and how we, we got where we are because so much, you know, so much of our history has been, has been tied up in really fascinating ways with seashells. Just like polar bears have become indicator species for the melting Arctic, it's really like the shellfish industry that's become the indicator species for ocean acidification. It's, it's Taylor shellfish in Washington and hog Island oysters here in California um, because that's happening. But as you say, your, your book's really not just about the environmental impacts of what we're doing to shellfish, but their role in, in art and commerce and history. And I first got to hang out with you in Cedar Key, Florida, which is this, <laughs> Beautiful. It's like a little piece of old Florida. It's like discovering 1965 Key West, but still alive today <laughs> out on the edge of the Gulf. And there are a lot of clamors there. There's a lot of shellfish operations. I wonder if that, that inspired you in some way. Yes. And it's funny, David, when you invited me to be on the podcast, I immediately remembered exactly when you came to visit me in Cedar Key because my son had just been born and Vicky, my, my son was tiny. He couldn't have been more than like four weeks old. And we slapped a life preserver on this tiny baby and put him in the boat so we could take David all around the Cedar Keys National Wildlife Refuge. And it was a glorious day. And David took my favorite ever picture of me and my son um, just holding this little baby on a barrier island. It was a really beautiful picture and I'll always cherish it. But Cedar Key... And, and how old is your son today? Oh, sorry. He's 20. He's 20. And he is a sophomore in college uh, studying international justice. So I know David will like that part as well. So that was 20 years ago um, when we were, we were living at, in Cedar Key at the time. That's where I started writing books. And it was quite inspirational to me. The Gulf of Mexico always has been, and generally the barrier islands of Florida, because where, when I was a kid, 
Um, we spent a lot of time more on the southern Florida barrier islands, often hunting for shells. But then by the time I lived in Cedar Key with my husband when we were first married, we would often find these, you know, fantastical marine mollusks called lightning whelks, which I devoted chapter to in The Sound of the Sea. These, these uh, shells were really important to native Florida people. And, and I try to write a lot about um, their cultural history in the book. So, so, you know, I kind of fell back in love with seashells as an adult in Cedar Key. But as you mentioned, uh, David, Cedar Key is a clam farming community and it really has retained its fishing village feel. And, and the way it has, and this is really interesting to your audience, in, in part the way it's done so, by becoming a clam community, and a, a lot of these are aqua, these are all aquacultured clams now, but by transitioning to clams, Cedar Key really had to keep its water clean. And so having so many clams right there has meant that the, the community, um, even though it's a fairly conservative community, but it has turned down every golf course that has come knocking. It has turned down, you know, vast developments um, on the mainland. There is a real incentive among the leaders of the community to make sure the water stays clean. And indeed you do see far less crises around you know, Florida's Big Bend where there's less development, um, more, more seagrass. And so it's still, it's still a really amazing place and it's still a clamming village um, all these years later. And interestingly, ocean acidification is not as much of an issue here in Florida as it has been in your part of the world and in the Pacific Northwest. We haven't had the, both, both when it comes to acidification and warming in this part of Florida, we haven't had those issues kill massive numbers of marine mollusks as they, as they did recently in the Pacific Northwest um, when we had the heat dome. That's not true for some of the animals in South Florida and especially, you know, the queen conchs who live offshore Key West. Some of those animals seem to be being impacted by warming waters, but, but here's, there's been a bit more protection so far. Okay. And I'm just starting to get into the book and it's a great read, but since I haven't, I'm sure it's in there somewhere, but you'll have to <laughs> tell me, seashell, she sells seashells by the seashore. Where's that from? <laughs> uh, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> You're going to make me say it, aren't you? She sells seashells by the seashore. Is a verse said to have been written about the British fossil expert Mary Anning? And uh, something I, I hope you've noticed about the book, if you've started it, is that there's a lot of feminist science in this book. So I try to. I try to write a lot about women who were influential in molluscan science and all kinds of marine science who, who really didn't get credited. And that goes surprisingly far back even to the 17th century. But in the verse we're talking about is said to come from the 18th century and the fossil expert Mary Anning 
And an interesting thing I've learned about her, um, you know, I, I knew that she was a fossil expert and that she had made some of the really early paleontological finds, but I, but I learned in this research that Charles Lyell, you know, the father of mo modern geology, relied on her for some research. She researched uh, cliff falls in the Lyme Regis uh, region of, of England and was never credited for, for that research in his work. In fact, he, uh, he also relied heavily on his spouse who was named Mary Elizabeth Lyle. She was a taxonomy expert in her own right um, who helped him with his work. And another, um, another interesting definitely unheralded source of, of intelligence for Charles Lyle when he came to the United States and he was searching for marine fossils, like in the American Southeast, he would go around the, the slave plantations in the American South and he would talk to the plantation owners about what they had found, any marine fossils that they had found, and they weren't able to tell him anything because they hadn't dug the wells themselves. They weren't taking care of the land themselves. So Charles Lyle would try to talk to enslaved people and enslaved managers about what they had found. And that's where he got a lot of his intelligence about uh, the creatures that they were finding beneath beneath the soil here in the American Southeast, and and that you know that helped give him a lot of insights into the into the sea that had once covered the United States. So I really work hard in this book to uncover those kinds of stories and help people think about science in a different way and how it's it's not it's not the insight of the lone genius that we often think of it as, but, you know, often, you know, a collaboration of all different kinds of people and all different kinds of affectionados um, working together across time. With your book, you know, you really do bring out a lot of the feminist scientists. And with that, tell us a little bit more about Judith Drake. Judith Drake is one of my uh, favorite favorite characters in the book. I, I, I had known about her before. She's very famous for sort of the first work of modern feminism. It was called An Essay in Defense of the Female Sex, published in 1696. She was advocating for education for girls. Her point was when kids are very small, they're raised by the same people, they're taught to speak by the same people. And then all of a sudden they reach an age where we send the boys off to learn about the ancient Greeks and we send the girls off to sew. And this didn't make any sense to her. And her real passion was trying to make education available and allowed for girls. She was actually a practicing midwife who had gotten in a lot of trouble for practicing medicine without a license. But anyway, the really implausible thing that I found in an essay in defense of the female sex was that it was really an early critique, the earliest critique I found of colonialist science. She was basically saying, and this is all stuff that's coming up now, 
that she had talked about in the 17th century. She said, look, you guys, you're, you're taking off in the seas. You're going around the world. You're going to all these islands. You're after curios. You're exploiting people. You're doing this work in the name of science, but it's not really... Um, it's not really forwarding humanity. Along the same lines, these sort of white male masters of science, uh, dare I say, they're very shellfish in not uh, sharing credit, which brings us to uh, Julia Ellen Rogers, who wrote one of the most popular shellfish books in history, and then they tried to eradicate her from history. So yeah, Julia, Julia Ellen Rogers is a really important figure in this book. She wrote the most popular guide to shells in the early 20th century. It was, it was called the Shell Book. People loved it. And she was, she was from this fascinating movement in the progressive era at the turn of the century called the Nature Study Movement. And in fact, she wrote the earliest um, nature study guides for the public schools of Iowa in the late 1800s. And she went to Cornell to study with uh, Liberty Hyde Bailey, who was developing nature study there. And it's, it's sort of too long a story to tell here. I, I hope your listeners will, will read the book. But essentially, um, Julia Ellen Rogers works with a, with a woman at Cornell called Anna Comstock, the first woman faculty member at Cornell they de develop this wonderful curriculum known as nature study for young children to grow up. You know, they, they feel that if children grow up with, you know, watching snails in tanks, you know, watching bird eggs hatch, having school gardens, all of those things that we now know about from work like Last Child in the Woods, you know, 100, 100 years before that, there was a fervent belief among progressives that, that children raised with those values and, and educated with those values would grow up to care for the earth. What happened in a nutshell was that during World War II and, and the rise of science, sort of war science, and that's, that's one of my favorite things about uh, David's work, by the way, all I've learned from David's work about, about marine science during World War II, but this, this was an earlier time, and there was, there was a movement uh, led by male scientists that basically argued children need to be taught science by men in these, in these other more tangible ways that do not involve the touchy feely, you know, hatching of eggs and uh, school gardens and so forth. And they need to read books written by men. And she and other nature studies, progress, uh, nature studies progressive era leaders were basically written out of the public schools. There was a moment in American history when nature study was part of all the public schools across the United States, that collapses during World War I. And it is very much associated with, with you know, misogyny. I'll make one more point about this story that I find so poignant. And that is a couple of the, the people who were educated in nature study 
before it was abolished include Aldo Leopold, who was literally educated in nature study using Julia Ellen Rogers lesson plans from, from Iowa, and Rachel Carson, whose mother had all of these nature study books written at Cornell during that era. And, you know, just, just seeing those two people who came out of, of that tradition and, and knowing who they were and what we lost is so heartbreaking. But so I tell the story of Julia Ellen Rogers. She ends up in California and she ends up on the Long Beach School Board where she had a real influence. She actually helped to bring nature study to the California public schools. And she's one of the reasons why California has such strong nature study to this day and did all that time, you know, after, after it collapsed nationally, she really helped bring it back there and it remained strong there. But yes, that entire story was written out of history in a pretty insid insidious way. When the Comstock's biography was written, Anna Comstock had, had written her memoir, like a 700-page memoir, and it was published after her death. And they cut out 500, 500 pages and left only the story of her husband who had built the entomology department at Cornell and, and included nothing of her insights of nature study. And to me, that's a really important story because it's, a, it's an important history. It's an important piece of American history that we don't know because it was quashed. I want to actually pop over to Florida and it's heartbreaking. And I, I want to talk a little bit about um, water quality because you're bringing that up in uh, the key that you were in with the clamors and, and what is happening with that. When we had that terrible red tide this summer in St. Pete, where there were just tons and tons and tons of dead fish on the beach, the Goliath group were so big that when when the city the city of St. Pete had to bring um, huge um, bulldozers in to to scoop them up off the beach and and take them take them away but but anyway it's just been devastating so the the thing you both know about red tide is that Florida has always had red tide the um, the Spanish conquistadors wrote about it, uh, Native Americans, you know, they had particular sayings about the time of the year when the fish died and so on. So it is not, it is not a phenomenon that's tied only to pollution, but there certainly seems to be evidence that for, for one, um, the additional fertilizers in, in the Gulf of Mexico that come down the Mississippi River have an impact. Our, our own pollution in Florida um, has an impact when the outfall from Lake Okeechobee that gets pushed out both sides of the state um, is, is full of polluted water, uh, high nutrient water. And also, of course, that these algae love warm water, right? So as the climate is warming, these algae seem to be getting worse around the world. And that's not just here, but in the, in the Great Lakes and in other parts of the world. And a lot of mine and David's colleagues in the Society of Environmental Journalists are covering these stories and, you know, sharing, sharing information all the time. 
So it's, it's just, it's been devastating. And the heartbreaking thing about it, we had a, we had an algae task force that was set up by this, by Governor Ron DeSantis. There was a lot of, a lot of hope when Governor DeSantis was elected because he seemed to really be able to bring people together around water. But um, it has been, it has been a, a fairly, a fairly weak administration in terms of uh, water and other kinds of environmental regulation. He did, he did put together that algae task force, but then the legislature did not tackle the recommendations of the task force. And, you know, there's, there's climate change too. There is work on climate change in, you know, the wealthier areas that can afford to uh, spend money on things or have a have a resilience officer and things like that, but it it isn't it isn't systematic. Florida is a great example of waste, fraud, and abuse when it comes to ocean management, and I I wonder if that inspires or frustrates the students that you work with at uh, the university there, and particularly the journalists, young students. Oh, that's that's a good question. I mean, we we are seeing a a rise in the number of journalism students, but I think that's national. I think there's a national rise in, in students entering journalism college. And that is sometimes attributed to a Trump bump that these young uh, idealistic people watched uh, President Trump trash, trash the news media and called journalists the enemy of the people. And that really upset young people who, who see uh, journalism for its rightful role and as a as a cog in the in the democracy. So we see some of that, but a lot of the students who are taking my classes have grown up seeing, you know, these fish kills, these dead manatees. They are very concerned about climate change. Climate change is at the top of their mind, as it is for so many people, so many young people around the world. And so um, they they definitely come into class inspired, you know, by by what they've seen and kind of fired up, fired up by what they've seen. And they they do a great job. We've got some really, I can say, really great things about the coming generation of environmental journalists, both from what I know in my own class and what I know from the Society of Environmental Journalists. So I'm really interested in environmental history. I got my master's degree in environmental history and uh, wrote, wrote a lot about Florida's water history. And there's, there's sort of this beautiful cycle here where, yes, we screw things up really badly. And, you know, in the, in the early 1970s, we had the worst fish kills in the country. We had, you know, every single major bay in Florida was horribly polluted, um, sewage going directly into Biscayne Bay, fish kills in every bay. We really turned that situation around. Um, the Everglades restoration has been pretty inspirational to watch, especially the K Kissimmee River, which has been restored with its, with its oxbows after being chopped into a ramrod straight canal. Uh, there, there are a lot of beautiful stories of restoration 
going on here that I've also seen in my lifetime. So that gives me hope. And I also think the interesting thing about environmental writing, you know, you, you know, from the sound of the sea that there is, it's got a lot of darkness in it, but it's got a lot of wonder and beauty in it too. And I try very hard to strike that balance. And as both a a Floridian and a writer, I can be optimistic, but also also feel that sadness in my heart for for what I've lost from my own childhood, um, you know, and, and that hope that I can be a part of changing things and fixing things. Well, I think we have to balance the wonder and the warning. And I think you've done that beautifully in this book and, and in your work in general. Um, really appreciate and hope you just keep on keeping on. Thank you, David. And I, I feel the same about, about your work. Um, as, I've, as I've told you before, I love Saved by the Sea. It's actually one of my very favorite ocean books. And I, I love the sadness and the poignancy in that book. But there, it is balanced with so much wonder that it really, really works. You're an inspiration for me. Well, well, thanks. Really Maybe we'll keep this one in the podcast. What do you think, Vicki? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, Cynthia, it's been a real joy and a pleasure. And um, with your life experience and your writing and your ability to teach others and bring such joy, it's been a pleasure for us speaking with you. So thank thanks. you for joining us. And uh, good luck in Florida. There's a lot of challenges. And um, I'm looking forward to some yes. good positive progress in that part of that. Thanks for joining us on a rising tide ocean podcast. Thank you. Bye David. Bye Vicki. Thanks. And now a word from our sponsor. That's the sound of a North American right whale with fewer than 400 left along the Atlantic coast. The right whale will soon be extinct. If we don't act now, 80% of their deaths are caused by entanglement with fishing gear, including ropes from lobster and crab pots. That's why we need to begin deploying ropeless fishing gear technology that is both practical and affordable. With your support, we can protect the livelihoods of fishers and the lives of endangered right whales. The Sierra Club Marine Team, because 71% of the environment is salty. To learn more, go to Sierra Club Marine Team on Facebook. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.